Hey, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We are MVF Church based out of Heber City, Utah. If you'd like to check out the live recording of this teaching, you can find that at mvfchurch.com. We're glad that you've joined us today, so let's get into the teaching. So we are in this year-long campaign called The Journey with Jesus, and we're going through and just reading through the Gospel of Luke and seeking to understand who Jesus is more from just following this whole story, plus a little more clarity on the overall picture of what Jesus taught. And so uh, today we're in Luke chapter 16, uh, verses nine. We're going to be reading 19 through 31. That's going to be the part we're going to be studying. If you if you did your reading this week, you noticed it was all of chapter 16. But as I've said multiple times, we can't cover every passage, the whole passage each week. Um, otherwise, the uh, we would be here a lot longer. So um, we're, we're just covering this section today. But let's pray and we will jump in. Father God, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that we are able to have times of celebration like we just had this week, um, whether it be celebrating with friends or family or um, God, just taking time to say we have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for. God, we truly are in many ways so blessed, um, especially living in this country. Uh, So many things that we take for granted, um, whether it be freedoms whether it be um, just the amount of wealth around us, um, the amount of ways in which we can get help, uh, the resources that are available to us. God, so often we're unaware of the needs that are constantly around. And so God, I pray that you just give us a heart, make us aware. Show us where we can help. And God, I just pray that you would speak to us your word this morning. <clears throat> it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to show you a picture. This is a picture of a Sudanese child who was, during, during the 90s, in the middle of a famine and was crawling to the UN food camp. And the child was so famished, so... Um, so hungry and so thirsty that it had gotten to a point where it was it was just crawling and barely barely alive while the photographer came along he came along came along and saw the child he actually watched the child and the child was moving so small so slow that this vulture landed and he watched as the vulture just slowly would take a step following the child, waiting for this child to die so that it could eat the child. Leave it up there for a minute. The guy whose name, who, the guy who took this photo, his name was Kevin Carter. And he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1994 for this photo. But once it became a, a famous photo more of the story unfolded and they, and we learned that Kevin took the photo and then moved on. And he won the prize, but he began to get so much, feel so much shame and guilt for having just taken the photo and moving on that several months later he took his own life. They found this in his journal. 
Dear God, I promise I will never waste my food, no matter how bad it would be or how full I may be. I pray that you will protect that little boy, that you would guide and deliver him away from his misery. And I pray that we will be more sensitive towards the world around us and not be blinded by our own selfish nature and interests. Carter was ridden by so much shame that he took his own life because he knew that as humans, we are called to love and to show love. We are called to have empathy in situations that are before us. And it's easy for us to judge Carter. However, he was a foreign photographer there on assignment, only given a short time to be able to film, the, to take photos, to document what was going on. He was busy. And how often do we pass up needs because we're busy, because we have our lives, we have our things, we, we have our wants, our desires, things that we're trying to get in our lives. When Jesus walked the earth, there was a false perception that those who were wealthy were blessed by God. And, who, and they, that often led to the wealthy having a very false sense of piety, believing, well, I'm blessed. God loves me more. And on top of that, to make it even worse, <coughs> people like this child the very poor or the afflicted or the disabled were viewed as being that way as a direct relationship to God's dis displeasure with them. And in today's passage that we're going to look at, Jesus tells a parable to make it clear that this is not the case. And I think it's important because I think even in our culture, we can get caught up into that kind of thinking. So let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. It says this, there was a rich man who was clothed in fine purple and linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed. 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. <clears throat> now, this is an interesting parable. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about this parable, a lot of different things that we could unpack with it. We don't have time today to unpack all of it. So we're not going to get into all the details. <clears throat> Um, there's m much to be said about the idea that this is, a, we have to remember with all parables, there's some level of, of reality to it that Jesus uses to connect, to make his illustration, but then it's also made up because it's a story. So uh, and when we talk about heaven and hell, uh, many, most commentators say that you really can't use this parable as a way to understand it because there, there's things about it that sometimes don't line up with the rest of Scripture, that kind of thing. But there are two things that I think are very clear from this passage that I want to focus on. The first is this. There is an afterlife. Either in the eternal presence of God or the eternal separation from God. See, this isn't the only place we see this. This is all throughout Scripture. We see that the Bible talks about a heaven and a hell, or a Hades. But this is a tough concept. This is a concept that, quite frankly, especially in the American church nowadays, we don't talk about it very often. A lot of people don't want to talk about the concept of a hell. They want to do everything they can to avoid it. In fact, many books have been written by different pastors trying to get around the concept of hell. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest apologists and defenders of the Christian faith in the early and mid-1900s, writing many different books and handling many debates in different college campuses, defending the faith. And he said this about hell. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. Unfortunately, there is simply no biblical evidence to support such a claim. Now, he was one among one of the many great minds who have, who have wished for this, but have not been able to say, hey, if we're going to believe the Bible, then we also have to accept, no matter how much we may hate to accept it, the idea of hell. And yet many have tried to say that hell doesn't exist, that all people will spend eternity in the presence of God. But unfortunately, there's just too much biblical evidence regarding heaven and hell to do that. In fact, there actually may be more biblical evidence to support hell than heaven. So the question is, if, if it's true, if the Bible teaches that there is a hell, if we're going to say, hey, as biblical Christians, we need to accept that, then what is it? Well, 
I'm not going to answer exactly what it is exactly for you today. There's only one thing I think we all know for sure it is. But there are, there's a spectrum of views. That I, and I, I'm going to give you two kind of extreme spectrums that still land within what I would call biblical Christianity. <clears throat> the first is the literal view. The literal view of hell is what has been taught historically from the beginning, that it is a place of punishment that lasts forever, that that punishment is physical, mental, and emotional for all people who, choo- who, who choose to separate themselves from God. Some that hold this view would even say that there are degrees of punishment in hell based on the life you've lived. Um, One of the passages this is taken from is Mark 12, verse 40. Jesus is talking about uh, teachers who, uh, biblical teachers who use their position to, um, to lead people astray and to abuse people. And he says, they will receive greater condemnation. Basically saying, making, so some people would say, well, that would lead to there being levels of punishment. So there's the historical view. And then I would say still within what we've considered biblical Christianity, there is also the metaphorical view. The metaphorical view is something that didn't really, really arise and take popularity until the 16th century. But it would still say, and most people within that view would still say that it's an eternal um, place. And they would say that the biblical language is meant to be more metaphorical for the emotional torment that people would feel for being forever separated, living forever separated from the goodness of God. One of the reasons that they would say that is, just let me give you one example, is if, for instance, if you were to take the biblical language of there being fire and darkness, people with a metaphorical view would say, well, at least for the way we understand fire and the way we understand darkness, they can't both coexist together. So that they would, so they would say that's meant to be more of a metaphorical language for what you would feel emotionally being separated from God. Billy Graham said this at one point. He said, I've often wondered if hell is a terrible burning within our hearts for God to fellowship with God a fire that would never be able to be quenched. Now, whether you view hell as a place of separation from God um, and with literal punishment of fire and physical punishment or more of a metaphorical, I think all of us can agree that it is a place of separation from God. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what it would be like to be completely separated from God and his, and any of his goodness. Any of the good in this world, any of, any of, of, of what God brings in to the world to be separated from this. Dallas Willard is a famous uh, theologian and apologist. He says this, He says, heaven is reserved for all who can stand it. I like what he means by that. Heaven is open to anyone who can stand it. What he means by that is, if you want, if you've spent your life wanting to be close to God, well, then you're going to want, you're going to be in heaven. God wants you in heaven. That, that, 
Heaven is eternal is eternal connection to God, eternal being completely enveloped in the in God. And so, if you've spent your life desiring that, you're you, God, you're going to be in heaven. But if you've spent your life desiring to run from God, desiring to deny God, saying, "Hey, God, I don't I don't want you in my life." well, then he's not going to make you spend eternity with him. He's going to allow you to live with your choice. But I think the key that I want us to get is that Jesus talks very clearly about heaven and hell. The Bible talks about heaven and hell all throughout. So while it's not a popular concept I think as Christians, it's something that's very important for us to to make sure we take time to look at and understand the best that we can and not just allow ourselves to be swayed by a lot of popular teaching by our day. And to know this, believing in it is not the same as wishing people would go there. Yeah, it doesn't make you, it's, you're not a horrible person to believe, to believe it. You still want, in fact, if, believing in it for me gives me a greater desire to, to not let people go there. But I think it's important for us to understand. It, as a pastor, well, just as a Christian, one of the things that just I, I hate to hear is when people say they want to go to hell. Well, I want to go to hell. That's where the party is, right? Oh, you know, that's everyone I think is cool is going is in hell. It, that, it's such a prideful and ignorant statement to to assume that you want to be separated from God. Well, Jesus is making clear that there is an eternal separation with God and an eternal place to be in his presence. But I think the bigger thing that Jesus is trying to get across here is why the rich man ended up there. Now, outside of the idea that obviously it's when we do not believe in Christ, if, if, we, if we don't have him in our, in our life, he, he's, that's obviously we're going to teach. Uh, we he, his teachings talk about that all throughout, and the Bible talks about that all throughout. This is prior to his death, so he's more dealing with just the, the, way, the, the way the Jews would have seen heaven and hell. <clears throat> what he's condemning the rich man for is the fact that he didn't respond to needs. He didn't respond to needs. God calls us to respond to needs. God calls us to respond to needs. Think about that. Why did he go to hell? Why did the rich man go to hell? Did he, did he go to hell just because he rich, he's rich? Is that what Jesus is trying to say? Hey, you know, if you're rich, you're going to go to hell. No. He went there because he didn't respond to the need that God put in front of him. How do you respond to needs? When God puts something in front of you, how do you respond to it? Now, 
the the easy answer to that might be, well, Shane, I don't have to worry about it. I'm not rich. Some of you that know me know where this is going. Yes, you are. We're rich. Where we live, we're rich. Let's, let's just examine what it said about this rich man. It said the rich man wore wore purple and fine linen. Now, the reason purple, purple dye was very difficult to get, so it was expensive. So purple clothing was expensive. It was only reserved for the rich. <clears throat> when it says he was wearing linen, probably meant his undergarments, so he had the best undergarments, okay? Like, it was all Lululemon, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> $22 for a pair of underwear. Um, and uh, so, so, he, so, so he, he was very well-dressed, now, I want you to do something for me. I'd like you to just think about what you have on your, what you're wearing right now. Just think about what you're wearing and do, take, take 20 seconds and add up the cost in your head. I'll wait. Yeah, I was serious. All right. Okay, you probably have at least an estimate of about what you, a lot of you men are like, I have no idea. My wife buys everything. I, uh, <laughs> I see the bills. I'm assuming some of it's my stuff. Um, all right. So I want you to think about this. I think this is very conservative. If what you're wearing costs more than $50, which I doubt most of us are wearing less than $50 with the clothes, I added myself up. And not counting my Apple Watch, I, not counting my Apple Watch, I was at about 140 okay? Throw that in, it's another, what, 250 bucks? I don't know. <clears throat> but assuming you're wearing about $50 worth of clothing, that you, what you're wearing represents, for the people that we work with in Honduras, that represents one, one, one adult's weeks of wages, what you're wearing is one of their weeks of wages. Now, assuming that some of you are going to go out to lunch today or dinner and probably spend about another 50 bucks, if you've got kids for sure that much, that's another week's of their wages. If you're going to fill your tank today, your gas tank, there's the rest of their month. So in one day, you've used a whole month of their wages. See, so and the way I look at that is, yeah, we, we, you might compare yourself to the people that live higher up the hill than you and say, yeah, I don't, I, Shane, I'm not rich. But when we look at the mo most of the world, we are. And guess what? You might have in your head, well, they, yeah, but they can buy shoes for $2. No, they can't. Their shoes cost, I've gone to their stores, their shoes cost the same as your shoes. Maybe a little bit less here and there. And they have some cheaper made ones that won't last in more than a few weeks that they can buy. But the this, this stuff really costs about the same amount. Costs them about the same amount to go out to eat. So he was wearing the fine clothes. We're wearing the fine clothes if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world. It says he ate sumptuously. I love that word. He ate sumptuously. You ever sit down to a sumptuous meal? <clears throat> well, think about this. In my home, I added up our average dinner. Now, I'm not talking about a nice dinner. I'm not talking about when we get steaks or when we, you know, do something pretty big. I'm just talking about normal weeknight. Everyone has a piece of chicken, some rice, salad, that kind of thing. 
for the, to feed the four of us, it cost about 18 to $20. That 18 to $20 would feed 30 of the kids that we feed in our program. It would feed 30 of them for the day in Honduras. Not because their food is cheaper, but because if they saw what we were eating for dinner, they would say that was a sumptuous meal. See, we think of it as just very common. But for them, it's sumptuous. For them, it's an extravagant meal. For what, what you eat on a Monday night, for two-thirds of the world, that's something they might eat on a holiday. See, we are the rich. Now, either way, I believe this parable deals with something much deeper than rich or poor. It deals with issues of the heart. It deals with indifference. It deals with selfishness. It deals with what Jesus really means when he tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. See, this man's sin wasn't being rich. There's not, it's okay to have wealth, but it, his sin was being indifferent to the pain and the needs of those around him. And that, I'll tell you, I'm going to step over to the side for a second. A little side issue. <clears throat> this is why I think it's so important in our society to raise our kids, giving them experiences to see the world through God's eyes. I mean, our children in our culture live in such a sheltered and let's face it, shallow society. That oftentimes they have, they are raised living, even in Christian homes, very shallow lives. If we aren't being very intentional as their parents, giving them opportunities to develop a deeper heart for the things of God. I mean, it cracks me up. I actually think it's really funny when oftentimes parents who spend all their time protecting their children from everything, never exposing them to what it's like in the rest, of what life is like for most people in this world, and then they complain that their kids are selfish and self-absorbed. Wait, well, why wouldn't they be selfish and self-absorbed? That's what they think life is about. They think life is... People taking care of things for me, nothing, no sacrifices ever being asked of me. And as far as they're concerned, everybody has more than me. Because we, as parents, don't expose them to it. We're not purposeful about it. We're not intentional about it. One of the best things I think I ever did as a parent was making sure every one of my children went on a serious developing country mission trip. You know, I'm not talking about a touring trip where you kind of see a few things and maybe pound a nail once with a picture, you know, and uh, not that. Like go in and work among people, live among people, play among the, the children, see what it's like to, to live in most of the, wor the world. Because I know it really helped give them that kind of view of the world. That's one of the reasons we are so passionate about Operation Christmas Child. Because I think it's such a, it's a very simple, small way we can expose our kids to the needs of the world. And I hope if you did this, don't feel bad if you didn't. Maybe make, take advantage of it next year. If you didn't do Operation Christmas Child, do it next year. And if you did do it and you didn't do what I'm about to say, do this next year. But I hope you didn't just take home a box 
and then mom or dad go to the store and buy everything and put it in it and, and then go, go take it back to the church. <clears throat> I hope you involved your children in it. In fact, what I hope you did is I hope you went through your children's, little, opened your children's piggy bank and said, okay, you have this much money. That means we have this much money for you to fill your box. Not we're going to fill your box. Not we're going to go buy stuff. You pick out cute things that you want me to spend my money on and put in the box. No, you're going to spend your money and fill a box. Because you need to understand this. And then when they did do it, don't buy them a reward for it. They're getting the reward in a month. They're, they're going to get way more reward than what's in that box. I, I bet you. Right? But, so we, we as parents have to take a serious responsibility because what's happening is we are raising a culture. And it, you can see the statistics on it. Americans are becoming less and less generous to the world around them. So yeah, we got to take it serious. Starting next week, an opportunity for you is we're going to have some ways to sponsor our feeding program for the children of Honduras. Um, right now, we're taking a break on sponsoring children because the third party that we use for that is have, experiencing some problems. So what we're going to be doing is just asking people, like, hey, if you want, you can, you can sponsor one week of feeding for the 120 kids that they feed. Or you can sponsor a day of feeding. Or you can, you can sponsor a month. Maybe that's something you want to involve your kids in. But I think either way, we all need to ask ourselves if we are meeting the needs of those that God exposes us to. The, the things that God puts in front of us. Do we look at needs through the eyes of God? Or do we look at them through our own agendas, our own selfishness, and our own pride? I want to share a passage with you. And a Matthew 25, it's not going to be on your screen. This is Jesus talking about the judgment. It's Matthew 25, verse 41 through 46. And he says, then he will say to those on his left, he's talking about he's separated the, the righteous from the unrighteous, the righteous on his right, the unrighteous on his left. So he's talking to the unrighteous on his left. He says, then he will, I will say to those on my, his left, or he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now notice this. Notice he doesn't say, I was hungry and you stole food from me. Or I was thirsty and you cut off my water. Or I was a stranger and you beat me. He simply says, I was there and you did nothing. It was their indifference that they're judged for. See, I believe that if we will open our eyes, that God is putting Lazaruses in front of us, in our path, 
all the time. The question is, are we looking at the world through his eyes or our eyes? How are you seeing the world? And I'll close with this. It's a common and very popular phrase in the American church. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I believe this is true. But what does it mean? See, I fear if we're not really careful in the American church, we can get so focused on that wonderful plan part that we begin to take it to mean that God wants to make me happy and comfortable all of the time. And we forget that the call of Christ is not one to complacency. The call of Christ is one to challenge. The call of Christ is to go against the grain. The call of Christ is to let him transform us and to give us his heart. That's what a wonderful life is. See, we begin to see the blessings that we have of health and wealth and prosperity. prosperity. We, we begin to see them as, as gifts for us to use for our own excess rather than seeing ourselves as God's stewards. Being called to steward his wealth to bless others. Something I say often is this. When people are in need, when people are struggling, what do they often do? They often ask God, why? God, why am I in need? Why did you do this to me? But very rarely, when people are blessed, when people are prospering, do they ask God why? See, so often when we're blessed, when we're prospering, what do we say? Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for giving this all to me. What we should be asking is, God, why? Why did you give me this? What do you want me to do with this? I am your steward, God. This is yours. How would you have me use it? Let's at MVF Church, let's be a church that's constantly asking God, why did you bless me? What do you want from me as your steward? And you see, I believe when we begin to have that mind, that heart, that attitude about the blessings that God gives us, when we sit around a big meal of food and friends and family, we'll be a lot less focused on the issues we have with one another. We'll be a lot less disgruntled about the the stress or the problems it causes us. And we will truly have attitudes of thanksgiving and gratitude. If you enjoyed this teaching, we would love to have you join us for a live gathering. We are located at 271 North, 600 West in Heber City, Utah. If you need more information about us, including our gathering times or previous teachings, you can find all that at mbfchurch.com. And make sure you follow us on social media too. See you next time.